You're listening to a Podglomerate original. Welcome back to Missing Pages. I'm your host, Beth Ann Patrick. This is the podcast where we examine some of the most surprising, industry-shaking controversies in the literary world and try to make sense of them. This is a bonus episode of our series about a lesser-known aspect of the publishing industry, ghostwriting, specifically ghostwriting for cookbooks. In our episode about nonfiction ghostwriting, we talked a little bit about this, but frankly, not enough. I'm an amateur cook who loves cookbooks. Many are worth reading cover to cover, but some are less than engaging. If you've ever visited a recipe blog and clicked the jump to recipe button to skip the essay on how it was made, you know how tedious this writing can be. It's a challenge to convey the precision of a recipe and tell a story. So there's this passage in um, George Saunders is a fiction writer, and he wrote this book about storytelling called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. That's the voice of J.J. Good. He's a James Beard Award-winning cookbook ghostwriter based in Brooklyn. And I actually have this quote, and I think it applies to recipe writing, too. In a strange way, that's the whole skill, to be able to lapse into a reasonable impersonation of yourself reading as if the prose in front of you which you've already read a million times, was entirely new to you. It's a little bit of world building, but for George Saunders, he's working with, you know, satin and velvet, and I'm working with plastic and sticks. JJ has helped write about two dozen cookbooks, like Mastering the Art of Japanese Home Cooking by Chef Masaharu Morimoto, A Girl and Her Pig with April Bloomfield, and of course, The Salt and Straw Cookbook from the famed ice cream shop, which contains the recipe for buttered mashed potatoes and gravy ice cream. My dad used to say whenever I mentioned that I had a cookbook that I'd worked on was coming out, he would say, who buys all these things? Because <laughs> you go to the store and there's so many cookbooks. Cookbooks have survived the digital revolution. You know, now TikTokers are getting cookbooks and Instagram influencers are getting cookbooks. And there just seems to be more and more cookbooks, which means more and more projects for people like me. How about the industry itself? What was it like and how has it changed? Ooh, it's interesting. My job hasn't changed much, but the people who are getting cookbooks have changed. You know, it used to be some guy got a Michelin star or three and mm-hmm. the publishers would sort of beat down their door and tell them they needed to do a cookbook. But the publishing industry, you know, has slowly changed their tune and now they're less interested in restaurant cookbooks, cookbooks that are basically a document of a restaurant, like those big, giant coffee table books with uncookable recipes and huge, (laughs) gorgeous pictures of, like, abalone shells. And how did you get into this kind of work? Were you working in food writing already? Yes, I was a sort of scrappy, aspiring food writer with designs on, you know, writing 10,000-word profiles on people who were foraging for mushrooms. That was what I wanted to do, but what I ended up doing, it was a lot of little articles about trends in food and five new cool fried chicken restaurants or chefs are doing stuff with pomegranate molasses kind of stories. And those were so fun and so interesting. And then I got uh, a friend contacted me and said, oh, would, would you be interested in helping a chef with a cookbook? And I said, that sounds 
exciting, but no, I can't do that. I don't really know how to cook or I'm not a very good cook. And the friend told me, oh, you don't need to be a good cook. And I, that kind of blew my mind. You might assume that the chef is the one who's great cook and can clearly communicate what they do in the kitchen to someone who might not be such a great cook. Um, but it turns out they can't, or they can't always do it themselves without help. And part of my job is to sort of be that bridge between the person who is really good at cooking and the person who may not be. So I get to ask them a lot of, a big part of my job is asking the chef all sorts of dumb questions about what they're doing and why they do it in the kitchen. Um, and of course, helping them tell their stories as well. And they're not quite used to sitting in front of a computer and actually they never sit in front of a computer. They're always like on their feet and maybe they like are looking at like some inventory stuff on their computer, but they're not usually sitting at the computer trying to make sense of why a dish is the way it is and where they learned how to cook the dish and what the story is behind it. So I'm also helping them do that. I'm like a, an editor, a sort of like first round editor. Coming up after a quick break, JJ explains how he draws out the details when he's in the kitchen with chefs. Talk to me about some of the things that a really experienced chef might have trouble communicating and that you help get across. I mean, everything. My favorite example is, you know, you ask them, there's some roast chicken dish that they're famous for, and you ask them, all right, like, you know, take me through your roast chicken recipe. And it's usually like, okay, first step, you roast off the chicken. And the next step is, and I'm, and you know, before they move on to the next step, of course, I have to ask them, what the hell, excuse me, are they talking about roast off the chicken, which is so second nature to them, you know, uh, they know what temperature their chicken will roast at, they know when it's done, because it feels like this when you touch it, or they do it every time in the same oven, and it takes exactly one hour and 15 seconds. But of course, at home, there's so many variables, you know, first, you have to buy the chicken, and either you buy a little bird from the farmer's market, or you buy a giant honking bird from the supermarket. And what do you do with it? How do you prepare it? How do you, you know, do you spatchcock it? Do you truss it? Do you stuff it? Do you not stuff it? Do you pat it dry? Do you let it air dry in the fridge? Do you salt it? Do you brine? All this stuff that is just sort of second nature to them, they might forget to to, to share with me, particularly the, the how to tell when it's done. And I think that's where home cooks, you know, chicken is in the oven and the chef is going about their business doing other things. A home cook, when the chicken is in the oven, they're not relaxing, reclining. They're not, in my experience at least, they're not making, starting on the sauce or starting on some other component of a dish like chefs are. They are sitting there with their nose pressed against the glass of the oven, waiting and wondering if the chicken will be cooked through, if it will still have salmonella when by the time it's done, <laughs> whether it'll be overcooked. You know, it, it's a really stressful time in a home cook's life that doesn't seem to affect the chefs all that much because they've done it, of course, a thousand times. So... Talking about the nitty gritty of working on these books, do you wind up writing recipes? I do. Every chef has a different way of getting the recipes or the, the dishes and the instructions for the dishes out of their heads. I've worked with people who are incapable of writing the recipes down, or at least when they write the recipes down, they're so sort of like, they're just a list of ingredients and a, maybe a list of steps. And you know, you can, can read those lists of ingredients and it just feels so dull. I've worked with April Bloomfield on two books, and when she wrote recipes down, 
there's this plainness to them. It's just, you know, two tomatoes. And, but when she cooks the thing, it's all about these little details that she would never think to mention when she's just writing the steps down herself. And every dish was incredible, incredibly simple, but made uh, incredible by these little details that she would do. Other chefs are, are great at writing recipes and they, you know, we work in Google Docs and I'm, I'm changing things and commenting and they're answering me back. And some people are, are somewhere in the middle um, where they, they send sort of rudimentary recipes and I ask all the millions and millions of silly questions that, that I think help turn those recipes into something a normal person can follow. For someone like April, I mean, she's just, the knowledge is all there and it's all tactile. It's just like almost instinct at this point. So, you know, we would talk about a dish, you know, a Caesar salad or something like that, which is so simple, which is just a, a dressing and a lettuce, uh, more or less. If you ask her, okay, what, what do you like about a Caesar salad? You don't get the answer. If you ask her how to make it, you know, on the phone or something, you don't get the answer. You get the very rudimentary details. But part of my job is knowing or not knowing or trying to figure out how to elicit the good stuff. And often with chefs, it's when they cook. So sometimes you just have to say, all right, I'm not getting the story. I'm not getting the details. I'm not, I don't understand why this is special when made by your hands. So you have to say, can you make this for me? And then you watch them make it. And then as they're doing it, you say, oh, why are you doing that? She's like rubbing the leaves with the dressing, like in this, in the, you know, being very particular. Oh, to, you know, to get, to make sure the dressing really coats the leaves and gets in the nooks and crannies by icing the greens and, or, or refrigerating the greens. Oh, because it's, Caesar salad is so great when it's cold. You really have to make sure it's cold and, you know, you get these details. You have to draw these details out because they're so instinctual that they might not think to mention them. Tell us a little bit more about your process. You've been talking about being right there with a chef, and you've also talked about getting to eat some of the food. So mm. tell us a little bit more about how you, you know, whether you have two hours with a chef on site or you have, you know, a whole bunch of days um, put aside, right. do you always get to eat things? Do, <laughs> you, do you participate in the cooking, for example? I don't participate in the cooking because I would only ruin the cooking. Okay. Um, but I, um, I, I, you know, I, pa I pass some things. If they ask me to pass something, I can do that. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, some of the, the most fun, I'd say, some of the most fun projects have been, I've worked on three books with Andy Ricker, who is the guy behind Pock Pock Restaurants. And he's a, a white guy from Vermont who, 30 years ago at this point, he was a house painter and a contractor and started traveling to Thailand and spending more and more time there and fell in love with food there and sort of created a real community of cooks there who became his mentors. And he, he opened a restaurant um, in Portland, basically dedicated to sort of recreating his favorites from Thailand and specifically the north of Thailand around Chiang Mai. And mm -hmm. um, he spends a lot of time there. In fact, he lives there full time now. And he and I spent three months total, I'd say, in Thailand together, eating and cooking. So the process there was he would cook a dish and, you know, it happens, a lot of Thai food happens quickly, stir fry, for instance. So I would, my process was standing there with my iPhone and watching him cook and asking him questions while he cooked and recording the things that are, that would be impossible to take note. You can't really take notes on something when it happens so fast, you know, I would 
record them and I would, he would call out the amounts that he was using as he measured them. And I would go back to my computer later and rewatch the video a thousand times to, to try to make sure I was capturing in the instructions everything he was doing. And of course, he would then read my instructions and correct me. And, you know, it's sort of a collaboration in that sense. Coming up after one more quick break, what kinds of collaboration occur during recipe creation? And what kind of credit should a ghostwriter receive in a finished cookbook? Is there a difference between original recipes and ideation and just writing a cookbook? I mean, is there a really real cookbook? Is that something that exists? Or do people need to understand that all cookbooks, perhaps, are a result of collaboration? I think all cookbooks are a result of collaboration, for sure. I mean, if there's no writer, if there's no co-writer, collaborator, ghostwriter involved, then there's an editor who is asking some of the same questions that I am. And I think I think it's helpful for the chef to have me, in part what I'm doing is anticipating what inevitably the publisher will ask. But I think some, I think some, there's probably some pure cookbooks out there. You know, the, the Gabrielle Hamilton cookbook is sort of, you know, there's no head notes, there's notes in the margin. It's just a, a pure from the chef's brain onto the paper. And I think there's a place for that. I don't think every cookbook has to be to appeal to, to the me's of the world. Gabrielle Hamilton's prune cookbook is even bound to look like her favorite moleskin notebooks. Oh, really? <laughs> it's made to look like a moleskin complete with the elastic band. She, you know, it was really important to her to have that total authenticity. So I think there are some, but I, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And she's an outlier, of course, because she is a writer herself. Um, yes. You know, she wrote her memoir without help, although, of course, she had an editor. So, well, and she also has an MFA. Oh, I know. Yeah. How dare she? Too, I don't like these people who are talented in many things. I like to <laughs> stick to your pick a lane. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> the next question is about the term ghostwriter. Is it something that you embrace or reject, or do you prefer collaborator? That's a good question. I I mean, I don't know if it's quite accurate because I, I do sometimes get credit on the covers of the book or in inside of the book. I think when you have a good relationship with the chef and they appreciate the work you do, that they, in my experience at least, have been eager to, to give me credit or to thank me and the acknowledgments. Or, you know, there's it's not exactly a ghost job. Um, I'm not invisible. But I don't mind it because I do, I, I think I do help, but it is really the chef's food and I'm just sort of trying to help them communicate their stories, help them communicate their food on the page. Books are objects, and they sit on your shelf, and they say something about you. You'd see this as a negative thing, I guess, but it's sort of sweet. Like, you just want to own a piece of something you love. And, you know, you, you've, you've seen Ina Garten on TV, and you, you, you have affection for her, and you just want her book on your shelf, whether you go to it every night or not. And you certainly want, when you read it, to feel like you're sitting with Ina chatting about her, I don't know, souffle or chicken with creamy stuff on it. And I think that illusion is okay. There's so much, you know, it's illusion in movies. You know, you don't want to see the 
the man holding the microphone or the cameraman when you watch a movie in the same way you don't want to you know constantly be reminded that there's a hundred people who worked on this cookbook who designed it the photos and food styling and you want to imagine that Ina did the whole thing you know she plated the dish and she wrote the recipe in her own hand and and I think that illusion is okay as long as the people who worked on it get credit when they need it now we have encountered the theory or maybe it's an idea not a theory that ghostwriting is becoming more transparent than it used to be what do you think about that yeah I can I can see that I think um I have noticed, uh, anecdotally, I've noticed that even the bigger chefs, the more celebrity type chefs, like the Bobby Flays and of the world, will occasionally have a co-writer or listed on the cover. Yeah, I think there's more of an understanding that chefs are not also writers. I think people have become more familiar with cookbooks as a form and and understand that there's someone else in the in the kitchen with the chef. There's some cookbooks where you'll see, like in the back of the book, there'll be a photo of the celebrity talent chef person and the writer, you know, more of a team effort. There are a lot of people who are involved in the making of a book. So many people, you know, from the photographer to the food stylist, to the editor, to the recipe tester, to the co-writer, ghostwriter, that, you know, you know, listing all those names on the cover would be wonderful because we, we all deserve credit for our hard work. But it sort of breaks the illusion. The reason you buy a book, the reason you buy a memoir by Hillary Clinton is because you want to read Hillary Clinton's story. And of course, she has many people probably helping her with those books. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that illusion as long as people are, are getting credit in some way. You know, my, my, when I'm not on the cover, if a chef says, you know, that's not part of the deal, I'm okay with it because the people who need to know in my life no, you know, the, the publishers will flip to the acknowledgement page to see who worked on a book. My dad will know because I'll tell him, you know, my friends and close people will know because I'll say, oh, look, I worked on this book. And they'll say, oh, your name's on the cover. And I say, I know, but I did, you know, they don't need the proof. No, JJ's dad won't need proof that he wrote it. And by this point, it should be clear to him that cookbooks are in demand. All kinds of people are buying them. In 2020, cookbook sales spiked 16%, which isn't surprising given how much at home we all were in 2020. But what is surprising is that cookbook sales have remained steady, with 20 million or more being sold each year. This makes sense to me. I like having a well-written guide in the kitchen instead of looking at recipes on my phone. And maybe this is just me, but I think using cookbooks make the recipes taste better. And really, isn't that the most important thing? We'll be back with another episode of Missing Pages next week. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original produced, mixed, and mastered by Chris Boniello. This episode was produced by Claire Ty. This episode was written by Claire Ty and Caitlin Boguki. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Vanessa Ullman, and Annabella Pena. Art by Tom Grillo. Produced and hosted by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Original music composed and performed by Hashem Asadullahi. Additional music provided by Epidemic Sound. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo and J.J. Good. 
You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod. Or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. 